Deep in the heart of rolling Texas Hill Country, Gillespie County has much to celebrate. This weekend, crowds will gather for its 134th annual county fair. It's the oldest in the state. There'll be a Ferris wheel, funnel cake, an Angora goat show, a washer pitching tournament, horse racing, and of course, the crowning of the Gillespie County Queen and her court. But beyond the festivities this weekend, Gillespie County has a problem. Earlier this month, its entire election staff resigned. The departing administrator told the local paper that she'd been threatened, called out on social media, and even stalked. Members of her department had been so afraid they'd hired off-duty law enforcement officers for protection. With barely two months until the midterm elections, the Secretary of State's office is now scrambling to find people to run them. This ordinary job, one crucial to the functioning of local and national democracy, no longer requires only the courage of one's convictions. It requires physical courage as well. I'm Charlotte Howard, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America entering a new era of political violence? Gillespie County is not unique. More than a quarter of poll workers surveyed by the Brennan Center this year report being afraid for their safety on the job. Local healthcare and school officials are also reporting increased threats of violence. What is driving this trend? And what effect is the risk of political violence having on American democracy? Today, I'm joined by James Bennett and Aaron Braun. Great to be with you both. Aaron, how are things? Things are good, Charlotte. I'm sitting on the floor right now because most of my house is packed up. I'm about to move from Denver to Los Angeles, so a box is currently serving as my desk. Um, But things are good. You're like an early days frontiers woman. You continue to move west. That's all I've ever wanted to hear. Thank you. James, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, we had a couple cool days a few days ago here in New York, or cool mornings anyway, and it was nice to get a little foretaste of fall. So one of the things I was really looking forward to exploring with you both is this problem that's simmering beneath the midterm elections, which is this question of extremism and political violence. And I wanted to explore with you the degree to which this is really a problem, how pervasive it is. Is it something that people are alarmist about? And so I wanted first to talk to Rachel Kleinfeld, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an expert on security. I began with a simple question. What is political violence? The best way to think of political violence is as violence that's used to prevent other people from accessing the full range of social, economic, cultural, and political abilities. And if you look at it that way, we have three different main groups that are committing political violence right now. We have groups that are sort of violence specialists. They're militias, paramilitary groups, 
groups like the Proud Boys, what they do is try to use violence to achieve their ends. Then there's just regular people who frequently are uh, committing greater and greater amounts of violence. And then there's a group in the middle that is sort of able to be mobilized for armed purposes, but wouldn't usually use violence in a situation, however, where they're in a mob with violent specialists present, they can be moved to violence fairly quickly. So within those three groups, do you see dramatic changes compared with, say, a decade ago? So in the last five years, political violence has really skyrocketed, especially on the right. So spontaneous hate crimes, uh, violence against political targets like legislatures. Um, We've seen 10 times the number of death threats against members of Congress. That's from both sides of the aisle. We've seen white supremacist hate go up more than 12 times. So we're looking at a lot of different kinds of violence. We're also seeing in America generalized, less political violence. So kids bringing guns to school, school bullying incidents, road rage incidents, all of these are up enormously. Murder rate is also up. We had the greatest one-year rise in murder in 2020 in our recorded history. When our society loses trust with each other and with the government, violence goes up and political violence and murder rates are, are related as well. Um, And that's what we're seeing in America right now. Is there a type of individual or individual traits that predispose people to be violent or to get swept up in this? What are the demographics that you see as a common thread in the violence that is being observed across the country now? All over the world, people with more aggressive personalities commit more violence. Aggressive personalities are not related to ideology or even to gender. They're just more likely to to get hot-headed. However, that is connected to a demographic. Again, all over the world, what you see is that most uh, violence is committed by young men who are unmarried, jobless, don't have kids. That is still the case for spontaneous hate crimes in America. What you're also seeing in America, though, is a very different kind of violence that started up in the last five years or so. And this is among older men in their 30s and 40s who have jobs, who have children, who are married. They're more likely to believe in conspiracy theories if they go to church, if they're involved in community groups. We're seeing this kind of person at armed rallies at state legislatures on January 6th at the Capitol. These aren't spontaneous actors. These are people who are acting politically through violence. And it's a very unusual profile for violence around the world. And it's really more worrisome in a way because people age out of the violence they commit as young men, and they can also be helped out of it by just getting their lives more settled. These people whose lives are settled and who are middle-aged and who are committing violence defensively because they think they're protecting their community or their belief system, it's hard to know what to do to stop that kind of violence. Is that a sign of a normalization of violence, the fact that it's people who have jobs, who are part of community groups, who aren't isolated? What kind of conclusions can you draw from that shift in the nature of people who are engaged in this type of violence? So my sense of it is that what we're seeing is a normalization of violence. We're seeing people seeing violence as a form of political act rather than as a criminal act. And so this older group is seeing violence as an extension of their politics, it might still be the more aggressive individuals who are committing the violence. Um, It's very hard to get regular people to commit violence against other people, actually. So you might have more aggressive personalities leading the way. But the fact that we're seeing this 
older, settled demographic of people with kids, that suggests that three things are happening. Because it's so hard to get people to commit violence, it becomes more normalized and easier if you lower inhibitions. And you can do that by positing that violence as part of an accepted way of acting. So in a war, violence is more acceptable. You can posit that it's defensive rather than offensive. It's acceptable generally to commit violence for self-defense, to protect your family, maybe to protect your values. And you can dehumanize another side so that you're lowering inhibitions because the other side isn't really fully human. You know, you see that in genocides a lot. I think what we're seeing in America is all three of those forms of uh, reduced inhibition being cultivated by politicians and then more aggressive individuals acting out first. But I'm expecting that we're seeing a greater and greater normalization that will allow it to move to less aggressive individuals. So in the polling, I was interested in looking at some of these numbers, the rise in members on both sides of the aisle who view the other side as less than human or who are steadily dehumanizing them in terms of the traits that they ascribe to their political opponents. Is the phenomenon that you describe really a problem of the political right? Is it happening on the left as well to a lesser extent? Help me understand how partisan this is. Actual acts of violence are vastly, vastly higher on the right. And they're even higher if you look at violence against people rather than property. The left tends to commit more property crime. They have since the 60s. The right tends to commit more violence against people and have for decades as well. So what that tells me is that on the right, people are losing their inhibitions to violence probably because they see themselves as less likely to get punished for it. We're also seeing a difference between the way the left and the right are organized On the right, people who justify violence feel very closely tied to the Republican Party. On the left, people who justify violence feel very disaffected from the Democratic Party. On the right, it's much more easy to drive the violence by politicians pointing out targets. So James, Rachel Kleinfeld helped set the stage for the trends that are underway how violence is is on the rise or political violence and the risk of it is on the rise nationally. But why are we talking about it this week, particularly in the aftermath of Mar-a-Lago? Well, because in the aftermath of the the search of the former president's home, there was a a huge upsurge in threats uh, online against law enforcement. And we actually saw them being acted upon in the real world. There was a man in wearing body armor and carrying a semi-automatic rifle who tried to get into the FBI office in Cincinnati. He was subsequently shot dead in a standoff with police. Another man arrested in Pennsylvania after making apparently very specific threats on the website Gab against the FBI. And we've also seen, you know, in this kind of terrible feedback loop that between our politics and these kinds of militant groups that a number of Republican office holders have been going after the FBI saying it should be abolished, defunded. And that's kind of feeding into this growing anger, I think, against law enforcement on the right. Yeah, it's really interesting the way in which In a span of two years, you can have a Blue Lives Matter campaign take off nationally and then at the same time have this extreme hostility against the FBI, um, both of those movements being driven by those on the right. 
Yeah, I mean, and and you know, conversely, we we saw the left back then was making calls to defund the police and to some extent delegitimizing police in general with you know all cops are bastards hashtags and so forth. And the right is continuing to attack them for that. Yet now we see um, Republicans adopting the same language and applying it to the FBI. Yeah, I think if you're looking for consistency, American politics is not going to be your thing, right? Yeah. Um, But Aaron, can you help me understand, because you've spent time reporting on this specifically in different parts of the country, how to think about right-wing versus left-wing violence? Uh, Rachel Kleinfeld got into this a bit, but what have you observed in your reporting? So in the West, at least where I am based, when you think about left-wing violence, I at least think about um, aggression towards oil and gas pipelines or eco-terrorism in the line of tree spiking. If you think about what's been happening in Portland the last couple of years, there's just been basically street violence between right-wing groups like the Proud Boys and anti-fascists that have devolved into brawls and shootings. And I think that's an example where you can point to the right and the left being at fault. But I think what Rachel said about the partisanship of violence is really interesting and really important in that maybe those are extreme examples. But if you look at over the past five years or so, while Democrats and Republicans may express similar levels of support for violence. It's Republicans and people on the right who are committing acts of violence at a much higher rate. What do you make, James, of the observation that Rachel articulated that it's really not fringe characters anymore, that some of those who are most likely to be at risk for political violence are those who are older, white voters, married, belonging to churches. She she had some research that she published that I was reading that said the two groups that are most likely to be engaged in political violence are those who express hostility toward women in both parties, that finding holds true, and then white Christian evangelical Republicans. What do you make of that? I, I find it terrifying, honestly, Charlotte, and it can only be connected, I, I would imagine, to the idea that the notion of using violence to accomplish your political aims is becoming more legitimate. And that's reflected in her polling. I mean, she also cited in in, in one of the papers that I read in preparation for this, uh, she made a comparison to um, Northern Ireland in the degree to which uh, violence is now considered a legitimate means to accomplish your aims. And she said the U.S. is now at levels comparable to where Northern Ireland was at the height of the troubles and the violence in 1973. In a moment, we'll hear Erin's report from her trip to meet a militia leader who's running for office in the midterms. For more of that detailed reporting, you should really subscribe to The Economist. You'll be able to read, watch, and listen to everything that we do. Erin and James, what did each of you enjoy reading this week? I really enjoyed a recent piece from 1843, which is our sister magazine, about the history of lawns um, and why they're horrible, because I think living in the West has really radicalized me against grass. I just walk around my neighborhood like angry all the time because of drought. So that really resonated with me. I'd also like to suggest a recent 1843 piece, partly in the context of the conversation we're having this morning, 
which is our friend John Fasman's piece about barbecue. Fasman went down to the Memphis World Championship of Barbecue and spent time with these people who were just so passionate about cooking food. And I put it forward actually in sort of in parallel to Aaron's suggestion of lawns, which Americans are also obsessed with because it's a reminder that we have all sorts of eccentric obsessions as Americans that are not about tearing the government down and not about taking up guns. And and most of what we spend our time thinking about is not politics. And, you know, they're both kind of hopeful reminders of the idiosyncratic spirit of America that isn't the indigenous American berserk, as Philip Roth called it. <laughs> Less anarchy, more barbecue, I think is the answer. answer. I'm I'm so here for that. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. And it's also in the notes for this episode. Sandpoint, Idaho, is a small town about an hour south of the Canadian border. Tourists come from around the west to visit the mountains and lakes and hang out on Sandpoint's posh Main Street. But the politics of most people who live up there in the Idaho panhandle are a deep ruby red. Hopefully we can open up and we can talk to each other. I joined about 75 locals at a town hall to hear from one of the candidates running for governor in the state. Uh, I'm going to start off right now. Why are you you here? I want to know why you're here. Because we love you. Okay, she says she loves me. But there's lots of people that hate me too. Ammon Bundy is best known for leading two armed standoffs against the federal government at his family's ranch in Nevada in 2014 and at a wildlife refuge in Oregon in 2016. During the past two years, he's found fame again while agitating against COVID-19 restrictions. He used that momentum to launch his bid for governor. Though he affiliates with the Republican Party, he's running as an independent so he could skip the crowded primary back in May. So I wanna ask you, Right now, what is freedom? What is it? Anybody want to take a shot? Freedom from government oppression. Okay, free freedom from government oppression. We have too much government in this country. Okay. I met Bundy in a park in Sandpoint a few hours before the town hall. There was a playground nearby, and his seven-year-old son played there while we talked. Bundy wore a cowboy hat and had a small constitution tucked into his shirt pocket. He read from it occasionally when he wanted to prove a point. I'm a constitutionalist because it outlines the role of the federal government. It says, federal government, your duty is this, 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 and this. We need you to do this, this, and this, and this. But beyond this, you don't have any jurisdiction or power. That's what the Constitution says. As governor, Bundy says he would put an end to what he sees as federal overreach. The states haven't said, look, that's not your responsibility, that's our responsibility. Like, uh, and I think that it's going to take one or two states to say no, and then the other states will just follow. This feeling runs deep in Bundy's blood. He grew up on a ranch in southern Nevada where his father, Cliven, was one of the sagebrush rebels. 
I realize now that he was, you know, kind of shielding us from a lot of what was happening. But, um, you know, the federal government was constantly putting pressure on them and, and all the ranchers in that area. Uh, and ultimately, the Sagebrush Rebels were a coalition of ranchers, miners, loggers, oilmen, and officials in western states who were radicalized by opposition to new land management laws in the 1970s. They viewed those laws as a land grab by the federal government, and their hostility towards the feds has flared up many times over the past five decades. By 2014, Cliven had refused to pay fees for grazing his cattle on federal land for about 20 years, and things got very heated. And I saw an army come after my family, you know. When the government tried to seize the cattle, hundreds of militia members flocked to Bundy Ranch. They thought of themselves as patriots who were defending small ranchers against what they viewed to be government tyranny. Range war is taking place right now in Bunker. Cliven Bundy's fight against the feds has ignited a firestorm of Dozens of armed federal officers are preparing for a showdown with the Nevada cattle rancher. Rancher Cliven Bundy. Cliven Bundy says other cattle ranchers were forced off the land, but he is refusing to leave. Both sides were armed, but the federal officers eventually went home to avoid bloodshed, and nobody died. The Bundys claimed victory. Because they were trying to demonize us and get the public to think that we were this like crazy group of crazy family that was, you know, resisting the government. And and we were able to say, no, we have rights. We have deeds with the state of Nevada. That that woke me up because I didn't think what I saw was even possible in this country. A straight line can be drawn from the Sagebrush Rebellion of the 1970s to the Bundy standoffs to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. To figure out how these events were connected, I talked to James Skillen, who wrote a book about the Sagebrush Rebellion and the dangerous movements that it has spawned. I think that the thread we see is from the Sagebrush Rebellion of 79, uh, 1979 to 1982, we see uh, a resentment of the federal government. And over the next 40 years, we see the network growing of people across the United States who have very different reasons for resenting the government, but who all have federal government as a common enemy. And on top of that, we see the more extreme voices within conservative circles becoming mainstream and giving up on incremental progress and actually moving closer and closer to what we saw on January 6th, which is a violent insurrection to try to finally undermine the federal government, not just through voting and and political action, but through violence. Bundy says he wasn't at the Capitol on January 6th, but his supporters were. Ammon Bundy, who is extreme in his views, He has managed to sort of steer clear of the image of violence. So in other words, he he is not carrying a gun. He is typically dressed in good Western garb. And what I would say is the note he strikes is almost as a, a representative of traditional 
American civil religion. And in that way, he comes across as someone who is devout as opposed to someone who is a violent militant. Yet even while Bundy is running for governor, he is creating his own militia network. In 2020, he founded People's Rights, a platform that aims to connect people who fear that their individual freedoms are being eroded by the federal government. With a text, people can summon fellow members to come to their aid. Bundy told me that he wants to replicate the call to arms that his family sent out from their ranch in 2014, but on a national scale. And People's Rights is connecting previously decentralized far-right groups like anti-vaxxers, militias, libertarians, disaster preppers, and others. Um, and I've said that, you know, uh, probably three years ago, I just wouldn't be a viable candidate. I just wouldn't be, you know. Uh, but I am now. I am a, an electable candidate. In fact, I, I believe that I can win this race. Despite the enthusiasm at the town hall, Bundy probably won't become Idaho's next governor. But the inroads that he has made reveal how militias and their ideas are infiltrating electoral politics. So thank you for your time. Aaron, it was fascinating to hear that reporting. Can you say whether there was anything about your reporting trip that you found particularly surprising, whether there was anything that wasn't exactly as you expected it to be? A lot of things. I mean, I think that's kind of the joy of reporting. Nothing is what you think it will be. But I I think kind of the most jarring thing for me was actually getting to sit down with Bundy after you know, months of of reading about him from afar and knowing that he is this militia leader that has inspired violent events. And then having him sit across from me and introduce me to his young son and tell me that he's an introvert and be very soft-spoken. And so I think reconciling those two images that I have of him was very interesting. One thing that was interesting to me listening to your audio is how much it sounded like Tea Party rallies that I had attended back in 2010. I mean, a lot of the stuff is really similar. And so what's changed is the organization around militias. James, what did you make of Aaron's reporting and what do you make more broadly of the rise in the militia movement compared with prior trends in political violence that we might have seen in the past? You know, another huge difference is obviously the role that social media is playing and the internet in providing um, distribution of these ideas on a scale we've never imagined uh, before and an ability of of people to kind of self-organize much more effectively than they could before. But to return to Aaron's point about the kind of mainstreaming of some of these ideas, you know, another period when this mission, the militia movement was getting a tremendous amount of attention was in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing in, in um, 1995, which killed 168 people, and uh, including 19 children. I think it remains the, the most devastating act of domestic terrorism in history, and, and the two people who carried it out were uh, connected to this movement. And at that time, and since that time until recently, though, 
the leaders of our country were seen as part of the conspiracy by this movement. George H.W. Bush as president had referred to a new world order emerging in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. And that since then has been seen within this world as code for this sinister cabal that is running and ruining everybody's lives. In fact, Joe Biden used the term New World Order earlier this year um, in a context of talking about what might emerge in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the internet blew up again with this conspiracy theory. So whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you were in office, you were seen as part of the conspiracy And one thing fundamental that has changed is that it's been clear uh, since before January 6th that members of this movement now at least think that they have an ally um, in Donald Trump. And that is, I think that's just a, a sea change. We'll be back in a moment to discuss whether there might be any antidote to this new era of political violence. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Robert Pape is a professor at the University of Chicago and leads a team conducting a national survey to try and uncover violent sentiments held by Americans. He took me through his findings on where this violence is coming from. In our nationally representative surveys that we've been conducting now for over about a year and a half, we routinely find that between 15 and 20 million American adults hold two beliefs. Number one, that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. And number two, that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election and is therefore an illegitimate president. May I ask you, what do you mean when you talk about the potential for violence? What are we talking about here? Because there's a possibility for real hysteria, given some of these findings, right, that they seem extremely concerning. So what sorts of threats are you most concerned about? Violence similar to what happened in the aftermath of the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. So what we saw is the FBI went in and raided uh, former President Trump's estate up Mar-a-Lago. At 7 p.m. on August 8th, uh, Trump issued a post, put out a post on his social media platform. And within just two hours, the number of tweets on Twitter that contained the words civil war went from an average of 500 an hour, as it had been the whole previous week, to 16,000 an hour and stayed up high many thousands well over a week. And then several days after that, we had a pro-Trump supporter who was at January 6th 
posting threats to the FBI and then carrying out an attack on the FBI uh, building in Cincinnati, what's happening is that we already have in the country 15 to 20 million people who are poised, if you would, to be supporters for violence to support Trump. So what that means is, Charlotte, it's very easy in that environment for political rhetoric to galvanize. We are not paying sufficient attention to the underlying body of support in the country that is sees the use of force as justified for pro-Trump uh, purposes. So can I ask you then, what would it mean to pay attention? Because what you've just described is a really dangerous tinderbox of a situation. But what are the steps that could be taken in order to bring this problem in hand? And, and which parts of the government or which parts of civil society are most effective in doing that? We can do something about this as a country. Uh, we don't have to just live in the state of fear with the tinderbox. Uh, it's also important to know that our national surveys show that there's not just 15 to 20 million American adults who support violence for conservative causes. There's about 10 million American adults who support violence for liberal causes, like to stop police brutality or um, against unjust institutions uh, here, which I think now many liberals would say fits the, the, with the Supreme Court overturning Roe. The Supreme Court now probably fits that description. Well, that points in the direction of what we really need is a bipartisan coalition against political violence. What we should focus on in order to diminish political violence is just recognizing that if political rhetoric can galvanize and increase political violence, then political rhetoric can also diminish political violence. So that's a really compelling strategy or a compelling case for how the communications would need to change. And that's largely a political problem, right, in terms of whether individual politicians view it as being in their self-interest to speak out on this in the way that you described. Can I ask you briefly about the extent to which law enforcement has a strategy here? I was struck that America's government issued its first ever national strategy for controlling domestic terrorism only last year. So is there more that law enforcement agencies, whether it's the Justice Department, um, the FBI, anyone else within the federal government or on the local level, is there more that they could be doing in a concrete manner? This is first and foremost a political problem. And it's a problem not just for our national political leaders in Congress and in the administration, but for our governors and for our mayors at all the different levels. And so if we keep thinking, oh, that this is just another FBI problem and it's like ISIS, we're not understanding the new context of what it means to have community support for violence in the mainstream of the American public. And that's something we really need to come to grips with first and foremost. And yes, it will be a bit scary, but uh, we need to understand that we just largely ignored it and that didn't make the violence go away. That what, by, by ignoring it, sticking our head in the sand, we're not getting anywhere. 
So Robert really stressed the importance of political messaging here. But I have to think that there's more still that law enforcement can be doing. What do you make of that, James? I go back to something Rachel said earlier, which is that one of the reasons we're seeing more and more people that we might think of as law-abiding job holders beginning to adopt these militant and even terrorist mindset is that they believe they're less likely to get punished. And that's why, you know, I think it's crucially important the work that the Justice Department has been doing following up on January 6th and really carrying out, I think, what's the largest law enforcement action in our history um, to make sure that the participants in that insurrection get punished if they deserve it. And showing people that actually know the government takes this stuff very seriously there's, there, and will follow through. Yeah, I was interested in some of the research that shows that this is an issue in other countries as well. If you look at India, Israel, Germany, this perception that violence against certain factions might be tolerated by authorities, that that becomes mutually reinforcing both that people aren't prosecuted and then it it creates an environment in which more people are apt to commit these crimes. Uh, Aaron, when you hear Robert speak about some of the ways that this might be dealt with, what do you think about the role of government and law enforcement in helping to tamp some of this down? Yeah, I agree with James. I think that one of the reasons why the two Bundy standoffs kind of energized the militia movement is because they were never convicted. So it was kind of this example of how far you could push the government and not suffer huge repercussions. And after January 6th, we've seen more than 200 people now be sentenced for participating in the riot. And there's research that shows that after the insurrection, because of the crackdown by the Justice Department and the increased media attention, militia groups scuppered a lot of their events. A lot of them went underground and there was this culture of paranoia. And I think that that is evidence that And accountability matters, not just for, I think, the participants in the insurrection, but maybe also for the politicians that helped inflame it. I want to ask you, James, about the threat of political violence and the knock-on effects that it might have. So we heard at the beginning of the episode this entire town's election administrators who quit I was struck in the announcements from many of the Republicans who are more moderate who are retiring from the House and Senate this year. A big reason they cite was the threat of violence, threats made against them and their families. The nature of these announcements suggested that they didn't think that the risk was worth it anymore. In addition to their political prospects declining, they felt a real physical risk. Do you see that dynamic being pervasive, that this becomes a force that determines uh, not just whether there are violent acts that occur, but whether it shapes and, and changes the nature of the people who are willing to enter public life. I think it's changing the shape and nature of the people that are willing to participate in politics at all levels right now. You know, I was out in Wyoming in early July um, doing some reporting about Liz Cheney's race then and talking to people who have been active in the Republican Party there. And one of the things I came away with uh, was reasonable people no longer want to show up to party meetings because 
people are so mean to each other. There's so much bullying. There's so much nastiness. And people go to these meetings armed. And so some folks are scared and they're just staying away. And what's happening is the ground gets, you know, seeded over time to the people who are angriest. And I mean, I guess writ small, um, writ more local, that's kind of the same thing you're describing happening in Congress right now. Aaron, what do you think about this perennial question I have in my mind as we talk about this subject, which is whether we're sensationalizing the problem? People talk about a civil war. Does that seem likely? I mean, we're not going to have a civil war the way that we did in the 19th century. But what is the way in which you see this playing out realistically? In regards to a civil war, I think you're right in that it may be very different than what we think of when we hear civil war. When I was talking to extremists, they prefer to think of it less as kind of a violent revolution and more as an organic separation. And what they mean by that is that they would just kind of like to retreat into their own political tribes, essentially. And I I thought that was interesting because on a much broader, much less extreme level, we have seen red and blue states diverging in terms of politics and policy. So I kind of think we are seeing a bit of that separation just in a very different way than I think the folks who were talking to me meant it to be. Okay, I think that's a good place or at least as good a place as we'll reach today to leave it. But it is my chance to ask quiz questions this week, which I'm very excited about. This week, Anthony Fauci announced that he plans to step down as the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's had the job for 38 years. And back in 1992, The Economist noted how prolific Dr. Fauci was based on the number of papers that he had written. He was the 17th most productive scientist in the world. In the decade before that, he'd authored 338 papers. But it was really COVID-19 that brought Fauci into the spotlight as never before. And I'll note the connection to our conversation this week is that he is among the many public officials that has faced specific threats over the past two years, despite his impressive service. So my question to you both is, which Hollywood heartthrob was nominated for an Emmy for playing Dr. Fauci on an episode of Saturday Night Live in 2020? This feels like a really fluffy one, but you guys are getting off easy. This is getting off easy. Um, well, you know, as a longtime um, listener of the quiz who's always dreaded being in this position, I've learned that the fallback answer is always Millard Fillmore. So I'm going with Millard Fillmore. <laughs> Aaron? I just have no idea. Okay, so it was, in fact, Brad Pitt. Fauci was usually oh. played by Kate McKinnon, who is a cast member of SNL, but Pitt guest starred in an episode in April 2020. And Dr. Fauci said that Brad Pitt did a great job, but that he's got to work on his Brooklyn accent, which sounds about right. Okay, question two. A number of politicians have hosted SNL, but which of the following has never done so? Okay, ready. Trump, George McGovern, Barack Obama, John McCain, Al Gore, and Rudy Giuliani. I... I- I think it's Barack Obama. Aaron? I also think it's Barack Obama. I can't remember ever hearing about that, but I have no faith in myself. 
you both are right. He did not host. He did appear in a sketch in 2008 playing a, himself as a guest at a Halloween party hosted by the Clintons, which we'll all have, all have to go watch. But all the others have hosted at least once, and President Trump hosted twice in 2004 and in 2015. I got to go back and watch the George McGovern episode. Uh, I have a very vague memory of hearing that he'd done that, but I, don't, I never have seen it. So. That was when SNL was a bit more off the rails. I'm sure he did all kinds of incriminating things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, James. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan, Harriet Noble, and Stevie Hertz, with research by Elizabeth Peet. Our sound mixer is Nicola Raufast. If you like the podcast, please let us know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive at economist.com slash checkspod and get in touch with us by email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>